Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is the Jim Rutt Show. This is the Jim Rutt Show, and I'm your host, Jim Rutt. We're on location today in Charlottesville, Virginia, at the offices of the Center for Open Science. Our guest today is Brian Nozick, who is the executive director of the Center for Open Science. Brian is also a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. He's perhaps well known in the wider world as the leader of the Reproducibility Project for Psychology, in which a team of researchers attempted to duplicate a hundred classic psychology experiments. Yes, well, thanks for coming to the office. Yeah, it's great to be here for a second or third time. I don't quite remember. <laughs> Uh, why don't we start off with a description of the Center for Open Science? What do you do and why is it important? Yeah, well, the Center for Open Science is a nonprofit technology and culture change organization. And our mission is to increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility of research. So the problem that we're trying to solve is that there are lots of barriers to the pace of discovery. And some of those uh, barriers are uh, because of the culture and the systems of how science operates. Uh, a central challenge, as we perceive it, is that the values for science are not incentivized in the daily practice of science. And that can be summarized, perhaps, with a single statement, which is, as an academic researcher, my rewards for success are focused on me getting my research published, not on me getting it right. And so the system, as it decides how to give me a job, advance me in my career, give me tenure, all of those things that I need uh, to succeed in academic life are about getting exciting and wonderful publications, uh, rather than promoting rigor, reproducibility, and actual evidence that can be built upon. So that's sort of at the base problem uh, for what we do. Yeah, I, I, I see that a lot. I've been involved in science uh, for the last 18 years and governance of science, et cetera. And uh, we all know that most scientists are working in good faith, trying to do their best, right? But as you point out, if the incentives are wrong, uh, it forces you basically, if you want to be competitive, to take it right up to the line, right? All right, what's your P score? Oh, well, on a good day with the wind, it's okay, right? <laughs> and, uh, and nobody uh, gets uh, promoted for uh, falsifying a hypothesis right? Or very seldom, right? And, and so the incentives are, are actually fairly perverse to do really solid work. Right. And they can sort of manifest themselves in insidious ways, right? I don't think there are many, if any, researchers that get into science saying, I'm just going to make up stuff, right? We're all, we'll say generously, we're all motivated by the search for truth. Uh, and with that, nevertheless, is a need to have a job, to have a career, to have stability. And so when I'm confronted with lots of decisions to make about my work that potentially have implications for the reward, then I might, I might go down the dark side and intentionally do bad things. More likely, though, I might be implicitly influenced by those, right? Motivated reasoning is pretty powerful for helping me to rationalize decisions that would benefit my career 
as the right decisions to make. And before long, if you're a senior researcher, it's not just your career, now it's your lab. Oh, it's yeah. your graduate students, and it's your responsibility researchers. Right? to them and my legacy, right? And this is, this is what I have found. These are my claims. So what are you guys doing to help push people back onto the bright side, away from the dark side? Well, the great advantage that we have is that it's almost consensual, the core values of science, right? People agree that science should be transparent. People agree that science should be reproducible. So the barriers that we have to try to change the culture to embrace more behaviors for openness and reproducibility are practical. They're cultural. They're people saying, yeah, yeah, those are great ideals. That's just not how we succeed. And so the problem we're trying to solve is how do we change the policies, the incentives, and the norms in science so that people can adopt behaviors that will increase transparency, openness, and reproducibility. Why don't you go down all three of those for me? I think all three of them would be interesting. Sure. So I, sh I should actually start at the bottom. So we sort of frame this as a pyramid. And at the base of the pyramid, uh, in order to advance behavior change, culture change, you have to have infrastructure to do it. You have to have a way to do the behavior. So most of our organization is actually building technology, the open science framework that makes it so that people can do the behaviors of being more transparent, share their data, share their materials, open up their research, and can register their designs, right? To make those pre-commitments to what they're trying to study, how they're gonna analyze the data, what they're gonna report versus not. So there's that base infrastructure of just making it possible to do the behaviors. The next layer of that, which is still in the technology world, is how do we integrate that with you, the researcher's workflow? You're busy. You've got plenty of stuff to do. You've got lots of distractions. Saying, oh, here's this new set of behaviors that we want you to do to make your research more rigorous is a great way to make sure that those behaviors don't get done. Because there's too much. All those lab members, all those people, personnel, blah, 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 blah. So the next layer is make it easy, right? Have that technology integrate into how people do their research now. So those are the base of the pyramid for behavior change. So now norms, incentives, policies. At the norms is I need to see that other people in my field are doing these behaviors, are sharing their data, are pre-registering the research. If I don't see anyone else doing that, why would I do it, right? I, we take information about how we're supposed to do our work from what others are doing. And so one of our initiatives is a very simple intervention to try to elevate these behaviors in, to be visible so that others can see that open behaviors are occurring in science to promote their adoption. And this simple intervention is to give these badges to journals. So there's a badge for open data, a badge for open materials, and a badge for pre-registration. If a journal decides to adopt those badges, then when you as the author have your article accepted at the journal, we're going to publish it. The journal says, and you could earn these badges. If you want to share the data behind your paper, uh, then put it in a repository, and then we'll put this badge on your paper and put a link to the data. Now, badges, that's silly. But uh, it is a very small, very easy thing to do for some. And so there are idealists that want to share their data. But the key of this as an intervention is the visibility, right? And now, me as the reader, I see your article with open data in the journal that I publish in, that I read, and I say, oh, someone shared their data. And as more people do it, more people see, oh, more people are sharing their data. And as norms go, this is a very easy intervention because the 
behavior is already valued. We don't have to convince people that seatbelts is a good idea or whatever other kind of normative change you're trying to pursue. Instead, it's there are people already doing the thing that you value that you just don't do because you don't see anybody else doing it. I like that a lot because essentially you're nudging people with things like your badges to move in the direction they know is the right direction exactly. already. That's right. That's right. And so that's, that is a key part. Most social interventions that try to leverage norms are trying to get people to do things that they don't want to do, right? You shouldn't drink so much. Let's try to show you normatively that other people aren't drinking as much but as you. But drinking is fun, right? <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> Screw that, right? right? But here, we have a perfect situation, which is people agree. That's a good thing. Okay, so the next one is incentives, right? And so the, the badge has a little bit of incentive. I get this little credit. So it, the next layer up from the badges is norm changers is incentives. And incentives we can think of in terms of what is it that I'm rewarded for now? Okay, publication is a key. Grants are key. Getting a job is key. Can we change how it is people are rewarded for those things that they're already rewarded for? We're not going to change the publication system overnight. But what we can do is change how people are evaluated for what they get published. So the best example of an incentive change that we uh, promote now is called registered reports. The idea of registered reports is a slight change but a fundamental one to how peer review happens at a journal to decide whether you get published. In the system now, uh, I do all my research. I decide what of it is interesting enough to try to publish. I put that into a paper and then I submit the paper with all my findings for peer review. And then the journal decides whether to publish it or not. With register reports, we instead have the authors submit for publication before they've completed the research. So what you propose to the journal is, here's the research question I have, here's the reason why it's important, here's some background about it, here's some preliminary studies we did just to get kind of handle on it, and here's the methodology that I'm going to do uh, in order to ask that question as rigorously as I can. No one knows what the results are, but that's when peer review happens. And if the editors, the editor and the reviewers agree, this is important, and this is a great methodology to test that question, then me as an author gets in principle acceptance at that point. I've got the journal article as long as I follow through with all the steps. Whether you confirm your hypothesis or not. Exactly. That's the key. This is absolutely the key because when it is in the regular system, Everything is about the results, right? I need exciting results, novel results, positive results, a neat and tidy story to put it all together. And that's what gets reviewed. Is this interesting? Is it not interesting? Did you find the new solution to the problem? With registered reports, it's all about the methodology. You need to ask the most important questions you can and test them as rigorously as you can. In the traditional system, 90% of published articles are positive results. At least. Yeah. Some fields it's higher than that. Yeah. And it's, it's a stunning, like either we already know all the answers. And so why do we need to bother publishing it anyway? Uh, or there is severe publication bias. Obviously gigantic publication bias in every aspect <laughs> of the system. Every aspect, right? Yeah. And that's because we think negative results are less interesting. We, uh, positive results are more desirable. It's, it is more interesting to find that this actually solves that problem or this intervention works rather than, nope, that doesn't either. There's another one that doesn't work. Yeah, right. Oh, but right. truthfully, as yeah. a pragma pragmatist, a businessman, most of my expertise comes from things I tried that didn't work. work. That's right. right. And you sharing that it didn't work would have a big impact on me, 
who is in a similar kind of business, trying to figure out a similar problem and need to get to uh, similar answers. If I knew that you already tried that and didn't get it, that would be helpful. Let me drill in on this one a little bit because, you know, there's been some talk about pre-registration for a long time yeah. uh, and it never much happened. Uh, have, you know, to what degree have you been able to get journals to buy into this? And to the degree they buy into it, do they actually follow through and publish, let's say the worst case, which is the result is murky. It's just a little up below the threshold that you would normally, you know, point 0.05 or whatever you choose as your factor. Uh, so, well, it doesn't exactly uh, say no, but it doesn't exactly say yes. You know, talk to me a little bit about what journals you've gotten to participate in this and do they really follow through on their commitments to, to publish murky results? So great questions. So adoption is really good. We have more than 200 journals now have offer registered reports as an option uh, for publishing. There's one journal that only does registered reports. And which one's that? It's called Comprehensive Results in Social Psychology. Uh, and they launched the journal in order to do it this way, oh, saying this is the future. Uh, and, and that's great. It's very cool. Uh, all the other journals, they, it's a complement uh, to uh, the regular system. And I think that's totally reasonable. So there are a lot now of journals. It started mostly in the behavioral sciences where we have our origins. Uh, and there's a fair number of neuroscience journals. But it is now uh, being adopted in more life sciences and extending beyond that. So it's, it's expanding uh, to see how well this model works across scholarly domains. We have done an initial analysis of, and other groups are doing similar, uh, of the outcomes, right? So as far as we know, no journal has yet declined to publish the outcomes because of the murkiness of the findings. There have been cases where it didn't get accepted ultimately, but those were because the researchers didn't follow through with the plan. That's fair enough. Right. right. You said you were going to collect a thousand people. And you got 50. Yeah, oh, sorry. Right. <laughs> that isn't what you said you were going to do. So that is an absolutely reasonable and appropriate basis for declining. And there's another appropriate reason for declining ultimately, which is I told you that I was the intervention that we have could say raise people's self-esteem. And so the question was, when we raise people's self-esteem, does it have this impact on what they do next? Something. Uh, but it turns out that I wasn't able to increase self-esteem. The manipulation didn't work. Right. So you can make a you can have a reason that people would say, no, we're just not going to accept that. But a significant number of papers have been published under this. Yes. Form. More than 100. I th I, it might be more than 200 now. And there's many, many more in the pipeline. So the rate of publication is increasing fast. And we have two outcomes that we've observed so far with this. The first is that 60% of the published results, the primary outcomes are negative results from this model. Uh -huh. Right? Uh -huh. No surprise. No surprise. However, <laughs> what, uh, less than 10% of negative results in traditional journal publishing. Yeah. yeah. So immediately we can see that it is addressing publication bias. A lot of the stuff we do doesn't turn out the way we planned. And that's the reality. So that's a positive effect, I would say, in the immediate. Simultaneously, a lot of journal editors would say, that's the reason I'm not going to adopt register reports for my journal, because I'm going to have all of this junk of negative results that no one cares about, no one will ever cite in my journal, and I'll be the one that ruined my journal's impact factor. But the second finding that we have is that we've looked at how often are the paper cited and alt metrics, right? Is it true? We could agree or disagree on principle uh, that you should make decisions based on how flashy findings are. 
but it's a reasonable question to ask. Does it make a difference? And so in the initial evidence, right, this is still early days given the number of publications, but what we have so far uh, suggests that registered reports are not less, if anything, they're slightly more cited than comparable articles in the same journals published at the same time. That would be huge if you get a big enough N and a long enough time depth. Yeah, uh, exactly. That would be huge because it would then uh, answer the kind of self-serving uh, objection of That's some right. of the flashier journals who uh, you know, try to live on high impact factors. Exactly. Right. We don't know why. Right. Why is it that these are being cited as much or more at this rate? Could be some selection bias. Could be better scientists are adopting your mechanism. Yeah, could be better. science. Yeah, that kind of is possibility. Uh, it's certainly a possibility. Another option that at least is my speculative favorite uh, is that the science itself ends up being better because of peer review in advance. Right. The actual mechanism that's, itself. That's very. If that turns out to be true, then you will have reformed well, science right. in a fairly major way. Right. Yeah, let's get the let's get the thoughtful analysis about what you're doing before you before do it. Before you do it. Right. And I mean, the logic is easy. Yeah. Right. Afterwards, what do the reviewers do with my paper? Nitpick. They tell me everything I did wrong. Yeah. You should have done it this way. You should have done it this way. Too late now, right? Exactly. It's too late. So all I do is feel bad. Yep. Those jerk reviewers point out what's terrible about my research. With registered reports, what happens when the reviewers say, this is what's wrong with your design? Sometimes you go, yeah, you're right. right? And you fix it. And then maybe half the time you say, that guy's full of shit. So I'm going to ignore him. But half the time he was right. That's huge. I, I can actually take that into account change my design and have a better design. I had not thought about that, but that, if that turns out to be a significant factor, what's going on here, this, this thing could really have a huge impact in our practice of science. Yeah. So that to me is the most exciting, still speculative, right. the most exciting part of this. The other piece of this that's incentives aligned still, that to me is exciting is most people hear about this process and they say, that sounds like applying for a grant. Exactly. Right. It sounds just like applying for a grant. In fact, it sounds so much just like applying for a grant that why don't we make that a single process? And so we have then uh, some matchmaking between journals and funders to test that out. Wow. There's a few pilots where a single review process, if you get, you submit your proposal, this is what I'm planning to do. If it gets accepted, you get the money and you get the in-principle acceptance at the journal. Everybody likes this, right? The author has to, instead of applying for all that grant money over there and then applying to get the results published over here, goes one place. And the grant maker uh, has a guaranteed publication. Right. Which, you know, again, uh, I occasionally do grant making in the sciences. And, you know, one of the things you analyze is this going to be a publishable result. Yeah. Right? And how much of the time is the work that I fund going to be reported at all? Right. Right. So many funders report deep frustration with we give out 100 grants and we end up with half of them producing any science that others can read. Right. What a waste. Like no one gains. From I that. like this. This is really interesting systematics that you're discovering here as you get into this. Right? right. Right. So there's just boundless opportunity with really what is functionally a very simple change. Right. That's what's great about it is we don't have to reform the whole system. There's a lot good in the system. We just need to pay attention to where those incentives are enacted and make just enough change uh, so that it aligns the values that we have in getting things like pre-registration into the journal workflow with the daily behaviors.
Are you finding, uh, who are you finding adopting this? You mentioned people in the behavioral sciences, you know, your, your home field. Uh, is it early career people? Is it later career people? Some of both. I mean, uh, interesting, I've run businesses that had some aspects surprisingly parallel. Uh, in fact, two, two of them were uh, computer chip design software companies. Uh, and I shouldn't say I ran them. I was the chairman of one. I was on the board and an early investor in the other. Yeah. And, you know, we basically solved the whole hard problem of solving one aspect of chip design, but that was useless until we integrated it into their workflows, right? Maybe it took us an extra year. And then second, uh, who adopted it was really important. We get Qualcomm or Intel to adopt it and other people will follow. Uh, but getting those first we called lead bull customers uh, was another year or two. So you know, talk to me a little bit about you know, who, who's adopting it and have you got any real lead bulls that yeah. are you know, famous people using this? Yeah, you're, and you are describing the exact scenarios, right, that we confront. And so we actually have as sort of our description of culture changes, you know, we have this, the classic diffusion of innovation uh, curve, right? The early adopters through the laggards. Uh, and we talk about the strategies at each phase of this. For us, uh, we have sort of a two-pronged strategy on this. Go for big dogs. Uh, and so with register reports, just as one example, uh, nature, human behavior, uh, e-life, uh, and applause biology, Three very high-profile, well-regarded journals uh, are adopters of register reports, and their adoption uh, has been very useful for making legitimizing the credibility. Huge! You get a Nature Journal to, to sign on, and uh, uh, you know people can't reject it as absurd. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, uh, yes. <laughs> well, at least they should. They should not. Right? <laughs> yeah. So that is uh, at that level is very useful. So then speaking of researchers, yeah, we love having highly influential researchers try these out and then broadcast that they're doing it because that has the same credibility indicator. In general, these reforms are largely early career driven. Uh, and, you know, again, you have to just speculate uh, on the reasons, but the most obvious one to me is that all of these behaviors are things that people going into science assume is how science operates. Yeah, when you're a 15-year-old nerd, that's what you think is going on, right? Yeah, right. You go and you study something, you tinker it's with honest, it, right? you share what you found. Yeah. Other people say, oh, that's interesting. Let me try this. And then you get in and you feel like, oh, oh no, that's not how it works. It's a job like any other. Right. right? And you got to drive for those publications and you got to then pursue grants. You got to make tenure. Right, all years. these other things. And so it is great to talk to uh, early career students, graduate students coming in about these things. And they're like, yeah, of, of course I'm going to do that. Like, why wouldn't I do that? And so that is where it's very easy. An analogy is GitHub. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that changed how a lot of people do software, right? That's right. I do all my uh, development projects now on GitHub. Now, sometimes they're private and sometimes they're not. Yeah. And again, uh, on old projects, it's never, it's never worth the effort to retrofit it to GitHub. But when you're starting a new project uh, or bringing a new, new people, a new team together, then uh, if you can, it makes sense to put it on GitHub. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so there is a viral element there as well, right? Is that you get the early adopters who recognize the value of the service can see how it can improve what they're trying to do, or they're just excited to try the service for the service sake. And then the extension into the early and late majorities is really about, oh, this actually can help me get work done. 
with people that I'm already working with. Oh, okay. So we see that a lot with the OSF, our core infrastructure, is that a lot of the early adopters were excited about open science as a concept. And so they were looking to use this tool for open science. But as we're moving into the early and late majorities, really, the people's motivations are not about open science. They're about the questions that they study in the lab. That's why they're in science. They're not interested in open science per se. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if it can solve problems that they have, it can, if it can make them more efficient for sharing their data within their team, for making some of that available, what they can with others, for registering their research once they've gotten that as something that can help them functionally do better science, then these behaviors are easier to adopt. And so we have to be responsive to sort of those, the different motivations across that adoption cycle and leverage the early ones for the later. Activities. Makes perfect sense. You know, another uh, example I can give from a place in my career that you guys might find useful, you may already have figured, figured this out and are working on it, uh, which is diffusion by young people. Yeah. When I was at uh, Thomson Reuters, we owned Westlaw, the biggest online. We actually bought it. I was part of the team that bought it. And a you know, huge multi-billion dollar business sells online information services, research services to lawyers, mostly a bunch of other stuff. That's the main business. We spent 40% of our computing time giving free access to law school students at fairly significant cost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And people said, why did you do, why do you do that? And uh, in fact, when we were looking to buy the company, we said, why? the hell do you guys do that right and i said well here's why because once they're users and this was in the 90s before it was completely ubiquitous you know people are completely changed uh trained on westlaw yeah. and they go to work for a law firm they're likely to, to flip the partner right because yeah. they're totally dependent on their you know associates yeah exactly in the same sense you know a yeah. full professor at yale or something uh is very dependent on his postdocs and his graduate students yeah. if they uh, come saying hey we really prefer doing it this way uh, you may flip a lot of those more senior people from the bottom up. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, because obviously the jobs change, right? And the real engine of science is in people who are graduate students and postdocs. And the PIs of labs are there to help facilitate it, but they're not they're not on these, these software tools doing the nitty gritty work. It's not that. Sometimes, some fields they are. But some, yeah, with some variations. Yeah, but mostly not. Right. Especially when the labs get big, they're definitely not. Yeah, in my own lab, I, you know, I, my whole lab has to use the OSF because they're in my lab. Uh, but I myself have never done the registration on the OSF. Everybody in the lab has to register their research. I've never done it. Because why would you? Why would I? Yeah, it's not your job, right? Yeah, so we uh, collaborate on the design. Uh, but they're the ones that do the operational work. Very cool. Let me uh, move on to another area, unless you have some more things on your big picture. Oh, well, the last, the top of the pyramid is policy, okay, right? So we did, uh, we did infrastructure to make it possible, then user experience to make it easy, then norms to make it community-based, then the incentives to make it rewarding, uh, and at the top is policy, make it required. Uh, and so an example of uh, policy shift is that we've developed what are called the transparency and openness promotion guidelines, the top guidelines. What this is, is a policy framework. It's eight distinct behaviors, uh, open data, pre-registration of studies, replication, et cetera, uh, that characterize how you could think about open reproducible science and three levels of stringency that a stakeholder could expect of their grantees, if they're a funder, of their authors, if they're a publisher, or of their employees, if they're an institution. It reminds me of the lead standards for buildings. Yes, right. So get a common language, 
right? A common set of standards that different stakeholders that drive those incentives can adopt. And then with these three levels of stringency, disclosure being the first one, right? So for open data, you don't have, you don't have to share your data for my grants, but you have to say whether you shared it or not. And you have to write it down. Justify it, maybe. Right. The one level up is required. You have to share your data unless there's you know, IP issues or whatever else. Uh, and level three is not only do you have to share it, we're going to check. Uh, and we're going to see if what you said is, is reproducible. Uh, so we have that as an f- overall framework. And so that's how we organize. How do we get this decentralized community? There is no driver of science. It's totally decentralized. How do we get them aligned in sort of moving together uh, to change behaviors? And so the top guidelines are adopted now by more than a thousand journals and all of the major publishers have signed on to them in principle. Funders are starting to adjust their uh, policies uh, in line with the top guidelines. And the, the big lift will be trying to get institutions to do the same. And we're really just at the onset of that idea. I say institutions mean universities? Universities mostly, but it can be you know, pr- other kinds of uh, research. How about the big uh, gorillas, uh, NIH and National Science Foundation? Yeah, they are motivated uh, to make these changes. We, we have lots of discussions with them. They have their own discussions with lots of others in the community. Uh, and they're hard <laughs> to change. They're slow. They're slow. But when they make change, it changes everything. So uh, that is the, those are the big, at least in the U.S., right? Those are the means of getting the entire community uh, to shift. Yeah. And those are unfortunately fairly uh, opaque organizations in some sense and getting them to make a change at a true policy level. Yes. Right. Especially policies that impact how the researchers do their work. Oh, we can't tell a researcher how to do, can't tell them to share their data. Wait a second. Oh, you sure can. Just say, I'm not going to give you any money if you don't. I guarantee you they'll do what you want. You got the biggest stick in town, dude. Use the stick. I thought that the funders would be the easy part of the problem. And it isn't because there is some degrees of deference and worrying about what impact in, in productive ways, right? Worry about the impact of how we change their now, You don't want to screw up uh, what they think, at least, is science that works well. I would argue that they're fooling themselves, particularly at NIH. I mean, yeah. biomedical research is a complete shit show of irreproducibility. I've heard numbers from knowledgeable people that say 90% of biomedical research fail on just the most elementary statistical significance test analysis because the ends are too small. Yeah, there is significant power problems and the Bayer and Amgen studies in the 19, uh, 2011, 2012 were good examples of big efforts and failures to replicate core findings. We have our reproducibility project in cancer biology, which is an ex- uh, sort of the, the same thing we did in psychology, but now uh, in cancer biology, we finished all of the data collections. So now we're writing that final report. Don't tell me the answer. I'll bet you lunch that it has a lower reproducibility rate than psychology. Okay. Well, a, a lunch has been bet and hands have been shaken. You heard it here first. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've seen of biomedical oh, research. Wait, it's, 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 oh, no. Okay. Well, now I'm, I'm, I'm saying, saying that, the, that, the, <laughs> that the reproducibility will be lower in cancer research or in any biomedical field you can name than it was in psychology. I shook hands before I actually knew what I was committing to, and I already know the answer. This is a problem for me. Oh, well, it's it's just a lunch. It's just a lunch. Uh, Great. Uh, Okay, well, that's actually huge. I mean, that, uh, again, this was a long battle to to, to sell new policy. Uh, But, you know, 
journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. That's right. And every indicator we have is nonlinear growth. So it is all moving the right direction. It's still a very small step on a very large issue, but there's plenty of community uh, can do spirit. And what I love about it, as you pointed out from the very beginning, is uh, while this is a huge lift, it's not impossible because it's aligned with the normative values of science itself. That's right. You know, you don't want to make your results transparent. And hmm, Wait a second. why is that? Right? <laughs> right. You know, I mean, there may be a reason, you know, it's got personal data in it or, you know, the IP issues, but, you know, the default case really ought to be data open. So let's switch to that. I mean, this is an area uh, that I've been, uh, you know, talking to Google and other people about for years uh, uh, and at the Santa Fe Institute, where I'm still an affiliate, uh, you know, we, we try very, very hard to, uh, to, to adhere to open data and particularly code. Some of the fields I'm interested in, which are at the intersection of cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience and artificial intelligence. Most of the interesting work is actually in the form of code or, or co code across training sets, right? And unfortunately, uh, many of the most interesting researchers don't release uh, their best code. You know, they'll release it a year or two after. Uh, what are you seeing in the area of open data and particularly open code? So this is a big issue, uh, and it is broadly recognized that these challenges extend to code, right? So there were some uh, initial attempts to reproduce findings from computer science conference proceedings and ran into many of the exact same barriers that have been run into in other disciplines where even beginning access to the code couldn't reproduce the findings uh, in the in the conference proceeding uh, because of, you know, missing library, whatever it is that changed, there were problems, uh, even when the code is available. Uh, and oftentimes the code wasn't available at all. So there is that change occurring, right? Data is being shared more, code is being shared more, other materials, uh, depending on the research domain, are being shared more. But it still is a long way to go. And for us, there there's sort of multiple phases to think about in this change. Right. The first phase is just getting people to share at all. I don't care that I don't understand it. The fact that you've put, made it available, okay, okay, that's, start, that's step right? one. Right. right. But the second step is some quality control, right? Maybe it should be commented. I don't know. <laughs> right. Maybe it should be in a more accessible format. I don't know. Uh, and so there's a gonna, there is going to be work to do for once people are on board with the behavior of being open is how do I anticipate that I'm going to open up this code, open up this data eventually? And so change my research process so that I know that other people are going to need to look at this. That's interesting because, you know, as a programmer myself, in fact, I've actually got a, a new product about to come out that I wrote myself. Is that right? Uh, right. And truthfully, it's embarrassing as shit, some of the, uh, some <laughs> of the code, because I wrote it for myself, right? If I had known that I was going to open source it, uh, you know, I would have put more comments in and, uh, you know, wouldn't have been quite so terse in my variable names and what have you. So Again, it's a long cultural road. It is a long road. And but the good thing is, is that we have a community, the open source software community that's that used to that demonstrated how it is that you can get to an effective and efficient process for documentation along the way of sharing at the outset. 
and even generating reward systems that benefit that, right? So the that senior person who doesn't want to share their code now, and maybe they'll share it in two years, a lot of times the concern is priority, right? I want credit. This is mine. I, it's, I'm not in here for the public good. I'm in here for me. Right. Of course, no one says it or thinks but it quite like that. The back of the brain's always saying that. Right? So the, the, there's a conceptual shift along with the practical shift, which is by opening early, I can actually get more credit. I can get benefits from other people being able to see and reuse and credit me for the work that I'm doing and sharing rather than thinking about it in the closed model of I get credit by holding it close. Yeah. So if there were the equivalent of citation for the use of code, right? Exactly. Uh, does, does that exist? Yeah. So one of the top standards uh, is citation of data, code, materials, the ah, components of research. I love that. Yeah. Rather than just the paper. Right. right. Since it's all about the paper, it really constrains how yeah. we think about reward. Yeah, then, uh, interesting, because if you could break that bottleneck, then the idea of hoarding the, the code or the data uh, so that I can crank out more papers before anybody else does uh, may not be overwhelming if you also got credit for citations of your data sets uh, and your code. Right. And it can start to diversify what being a scholarly contributor means. What could be a data specialist, for instance? I am someone who is amazing at generating data. I hate writing papers, but I generate lots of useful data. Why shouldn't that be a viable path? for productive contribution to science. Yeah, or I'm a machine learning guru, right? I can really come up with some amazing uh, machine learning algorithms, but I'm bored, uh, bored to tears with data and I'm bored to tears with writing papers. Yeah. And so why can't I create some great algorithms that do some amazing things that people can use in science and get credit for it? Right. And of course, in the business world, everybody understands this intuitively, right? The specialization and coordination across different specialties is valued. It's fact, that's an interesting, actually, I love that because one of my critiques of academic science is it's too decentralized, right? No, uh, I'm on the board of visitors of the brain and cognitive science department at MIT, an amazingly good department. Yeah, right? yeah Rebecca Sachs is on our board. Yeah, I think I, I saw that and she's now uh, uh, associate uh, head of the department yeah. at uh, BCS. Really good person. Uh, But anyway, uh, even at that level, I'm saying, you know, no business would be so decentralized, right? Uh, You know, there would be uh, more specialization and more cooperation across the specialty. So what's a company but an artificial uh, organism to lower the barriers uh, of internal competition within the various components because they're all aligned on a single goal? Well, that's not the way academic science works. Not at all. Not at all, right? It's a whole series of little independent fiefdoms. uh, And what you're also limited by the amount of work you can get out of one graduate student in one graduate student career. Because uh, the quantum of work has to be one dissertation's worth, pretty much. Right? That's right. And we leave so much talent on the table, right? So there are many, many people who have lots of training and lots of skill who are in environments that they have very little access to resources. They're at a teaching institution, they teach four classes a semester, right? They could be great contributors to science, but in the vertically integrated model where they have to come up with the idea, get the resources, run the studies, write the paper, analyze the, all of the parts, they don't have time to do that. But if they could contribute just this part, just this part, just this part, make it a horizontal model where they are part of a system. Like a business, it has, you know, marketing, sales, IT, you know, operations, janitorial, right? I mean, they're all working for a common goal. Yeah, and so their contribution is focused on what time, resources, and skills they have available to contribute to it. 
Interesting. I can give you a story from our BCS at MIT. The uh, uh, the visiting committee is a very interesting process that MIT has been doing since 1875, approximately. And it runs like clockwork. It's a, it's a thing of great beauty. Someone should really write it up. But anyway, part of it is we go out and, and interview every level of participant in a department from undergraduates through postdoc, early faculty, late faculty. Uh, and we get there uh, uninhibited, we hope, uh, critiques. And a few years back, one of the critiques was, uh, you know, the level of programming and systems management necessary to do the work we're doing today is really over the heads of many graduate students and postdocs. Yeah. And we really need to build a departmental level, horizontal uh, software, data management, network operations resource, right? And we had some technologists and tech business people on the board of visitors. And uh, I would also say that the department head was very sympathetic and they actually did allocate some fairly serious dollars uh, to change how it was thought access to, to uh, computer technology would be available within the department. So now someone doesn't have to be fully vertically integrated. And that is certain, has certainly empowered some of the labs in ways that you know they couldn't have ever gotten to on their own realistically. Yeah. Oh, that's a great example. Yeah. Another one that I, I think of, it's is a positive step, I think, uh, in all of this is in the life sciences, the emergence of uh, core operations facilities, right? The, where uh, there is a lab that does this kind of technique and other labs can make use of that resource. And so that sharing, uh, that collective sharing is a benefit for everybody. And we're certainly seeing that a lot of that in the life sciences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's certainly a yeah, recognition that the problems we're trying to solve are bigger than any individual lab can do. So it's sort of forcing people into figuring out, oh, okay, maybe we need to actually reorganize this. And oh, it turns out other people have solved this problem. Yeah, some of the techniques are so hard. Just being an expert in the technique, technique. is, oh, I mean, yeah, is exactly. a gigantic contribution to the science, but doesn't necessarily leave room for a person to also be a PI, right? Yeah, you can be intellectually at the same level of a big lab PI and be the master of a cutting edge technique. Yeah, it is a bizarre thing that we've sort of fetishized in science, academic science, that everybody essentially has to be the CEO, right? That, that's it. That's the only. Yeah, the PI job is essentially a CEO. Right. And that's 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 the only job that is what matters. But then obviously that's not how. Another model I saw that was very interesting. I recently uh, stopped in and chatted uh, with senior folks at the Broad Institute up in Cambridge, and they have taken a different approach. Uh, they now have very senior research scientists, right, that are parts of they have seven teams, right, that are much bigger than a PI lab. And they have a PI essentially as the CEO. Uh, but one of the things that they have uh, insisted upon is that the PIs are typically part-time from elsewhere, you know, Harvard or, uh, you know, one of the big hospitals in uh, Boston or MIT or whatever, and maybe they're a third time, half time at the most, uh, that there be research science people at almost that level. I mean, paid really big dollars who are going to be there for the long term. A very different model. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah I love that there's experimentation like yeah. this happening. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, of course it help, helps that somebody gave them $600 million, right? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't hurt. Yeah, Eli Brode, right? As a matter of fact, his name's on the building, right? So, but you know, again, it's another model of doing science at a different scale, or it's, it's not uh, uh, one little thing. Um, what are the issues around data, particularly now that we're moving towards bigger and bigger data sets? There are a lot of issues. Part of it is in the related but separate concept from open is fair. 
Uh, fair data means findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable. And all of those could be true without it being actually open, right? It could be, I've made it so it's possible to use, but you need to get permission for me to access the data. But it being fair data means that you can actually make productive use of it. Yeah, for instance, maybe as long as you use this API, uh, you can write uh, an, an analysis routine, which I will run for you and give you the result, but you never actually see my data. Right. Or the privacy issues, as you mentioned before, or IP issues. I'm willing to have people analyze it. I just can't release the whole thing to you. Uh, but fairness is also important for data that is totally open, which is just how can we make it actually usable? Right. One of the promises of open data is that we'll be able to integrate lots of different data sets productively to ask questions that we couldn't ask in any single data set. And that can only really happen if the data is fair uh, so that you can actually put it together in some productive. So it's harder than you think. It is very hard. We we dealt with this in business a lot, you know, especially Thomson Reuters. We had thousands of commercial databases and trying to build intersections of them, normalize the, because, you know, people, the way they divided things up conceptually, the ontologies. Oh, it's a, it's a mess. Yeah, the ontologies, you know, they're, they're not a superset of some one grand ontology. They're all separate <laughs> ontologies developed for different reasons. Uh, they don't overlap. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to them, really. And half of the ontologies have been developed to solve the problems of the other ontologies being a mess. Yeah, exactly. And then each one, then, oh, wait, okay, that one doesn't work. The other, okay, build one. Yeah, it's one of my uh, easy ways to dismiss somebody is someone who tells me they've solved the ontology <laughs> problem, right? I go, Doesn't matter I go no, you yeah. haven't, right? <laughs> I guarantee you. You know, it's like someone said, oh, I've beaten the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah. I go, well, I'll see you later, right? <laughs> you know, I think that's one of those fundamental things you can count on, that the ontology problem will always be with us. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so the we, early on in building the OSF, we you know, were confronted with this because everybody that builds some tool like this to try to make common tools uh, or make it easier for people to work in, in concert has to make some decision about ontology. And we decided nothing. <laughs> We're not going to even try. Uh, and instead, what we'll do is we'll try to facilitate many different uh, example metadata standards uh, where people can say, this is my metadata standard. And then we'll just cultivate those that become popular. And those will be the ones we emphasize. So rather than try to impose one, let the community sort of have some. That's the only way you can do it. You were very wise not to try to solve that problem. That's, I mean, you're already boiling the ocean. This would be boiling, you know, five oceans, right, by itself. Uh, so I would strongly commend you for making that decision. Let's move on a little bit. Another one of my pet peeves, the insane costs of for-profit journals. Yeah. What do you think about that? And is, are you do, doing anything to, uh, you know, help uh, much lower? cost journals or more lower cost or zero cost uh, models of publishing come into existence? Yeah, this is a problem that we care about a lot, uh, although we help uh, we have a sort of a small way that we're involved compared to some of the others uh, in this space. Uh, so open access is the sort of the, the tip of the spear on the open science movement because it is mature. It has the longest history of the research community saying, really the research we produce should be openly available to anybody. Uh, it's weird given the internet age that we have this subscription model that closes access to publicly funded work for the public to consume and use in some productive way. So the 
rational, the rationale for open access is a very easy case to make. Of course, there's lots of vested interests in the business models of subscription because they're enormously profitable. Elsevier, Taylor and Francis Wiley make lots and lots of money based on this. Obscene profit margins, if only you knew. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's, it is. Uh, there are a couple of people on the inter, on the, on the Twitter sphere uh, that publish each year the, their rates of return. Uh, and it's just so amazing, uh, right? Is who knew that, that Elsevier is consistently more profitable than Apple? So that is big challenges. The way that we're contributing is less on the advocacy side because there's others that are doing that well. Uh, we'd just be one more voice uh, in uh, work that is happening to move the community toward open access. Uh, the gap that we're trying to fill is technology, is how can we make it easy for communities to make their research more open? And so we have a service called uh, OSF Preprints or OSF Papers, mm -hmm. where any community can start their own paper sharing service. Uh, and usually this is framed in terms of preprints or postprints, right? Paper, papers before they've been peer reviewed, sharing them for advanced uh, discussion. And archive is the course. granddaddy of I this. I use it every day. Right, right. So that uh, has worked so well for physics and allied communities. And now machine learning. Yeah, since what, 1991 or something, uh, it was released. Uh, and that model is now we're f trying to help facilitate extending that to all disciplines that want to launch one. So we found culturally really difficult in biology in particular. Yeah, it's I don't know why. changing fast. Oh, that's good. Uh, finally, BioArchive is the most popular service uh, for the life sciences. Uh, and its growth rates are like ours, uh, which is just this massive growth uh, in sharing of preprints in the life sciences. We host now 29 different preprint services across a variety of different communities. So the latest to, that launched last week was Ed Archive for education research. Uh, the week before India Archive uh, launched for Indian researchers to have more open access data. Our largest preprint repository is Ein Archive, which is an Indonesian research community uh, preprint sharing service. So not necessarily disciplinary. Uh, so they have, it, yeah, it could be cut any are, which way. Right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, there are regional ones, Africa, uh, Arab language, uh, French language, and uh, Indonesian. And then there are a lot of disciplinary ones. Sci Archive for psychology, Social Archive for the social sciences, Earth Archive for Earth sciences. So that is, for us, the uh, way that we can fill a gap uh, in trying to promote the openness of the outcomes of research is just allow communities to launch their own services, make their papers more accessible, uh, and that as a complement to whatever happens in the publishing in the uh, journal world. world. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which gets me, sounds like a little outside your uh, owned uh, sphere, but if we're going to talk about science and the process of science, we have to talk about peer review. Yeah. Right? I mean, at one level, it just seems like a really, really weird way to do something. On the other hand, I have never heard anybody come up with anything any better. <laughs> uh, what's your thought on where we are with peer review today? And are there any alternatives or does do technologies or platforms like uh, your open science platform provide opportunities to do peer review in a way that's uh, less slow, expensive, opaque, etc.? This is an area ripe for a lot of innovation. And the positive thing is that a lot of that innovation is happening. Over the last six or seven years, a number of different technology groups uh, and uh, innovative editors have said, we're going we're gonna to change things. We're going to see what happens. 
And so the, the, what we want to try to promote organizationally is experimentation with this, right? We arrived at this system of peer review in a really ad hoc manner. And it is a really ad hoc system, right? And it's newer than people think, right? It is, yeah. In the 50s. The current form of peer review that we have didn't really solidify until the late 50s. Right, which is surprising to people. I thought it was always like this. Nope, Newton did not have reviewer (laughs) two to deal with, right? It was different then. But the uh, experimentation, I think, is very useful here because the existing system of serial submission to different journals of and a handling editor that has authority, you know, complete authority of whether it gets published or not, and ad hoc selection of individual reviewers is a very inefficient system. And so we have potential uh, integrations with peer review services on these preprint services that we host. Uh, so there are a number of different uh, peer review services that if we attach it to the preprint services could start to innovate on trying to, let's just try out a different way of doing peer review. Let's do it totally open. Uh, let's do it uh, where we invite some people and then don't invite other people or whatever. What would you say are some examples of good uh, experimental peer review systems? A real interesting model uh, is one that eLife has been using. Uh, I mentioned them earlier right. as adopting register reports. They're willing to try lots of different things. Their peer review approach uh, that they've been using for the last four or five years uh, has um, a consultative approach among the peer reviewers. So the you submit the paper just like normal. You have an editor just like normal. The editor selects peer reviewers. They do their initial evaluation, and then the peer reviewers talk to each other. Uh, and come up with a summary evaluation rather than this reviewer one said X and reviewer two said Y and you just got to deal with it. Uh, And so that comes with a sort of a summary statement. This is what our feedback is. And all of that is open. So they share the entire process, uh, the outcomes of that, and then the response letters from the authors. And so when you see the paper in eLife, you can see that entire history. Wow, I love it. It's great. That's great. Right? So you can, and there's often in good peer review, having been observer of it for a long time and contributor, but mostly me observing other reviewers, sometimes the scholarship's amazing. Amazing. And yet in the standard system, it's totally closed off from the world. And when I read the paper from what I, I was a reviewer, I say, oh my gosh, the paper does not capture some of the real big issues that came up in the review process. It would be so useful for people to be able to see that. So that's, I think, a a great illustration of just one simple thing of opening that up uh, that can really change how peer review could be used. That's really, really interesting. I'll have to take a look at that. It's something a number of us have talked about, but at least the people I know, no one's gotten past the level of talk. Glad to hear there are people actually out trying different things. Yeah, yeah, there is a, a real nice test bed uh, and the real challenge I think is to get some of those innovations into the traditional uh, journals uh, to really scale it up. Great. Well, uh, thanks for this amazing detailed discussion about uh, you know open science and your organization here. Uh, let's move on to another topic. Sure. Probably in the wider world, you're uh, most well known for the reproducibility project in psychology. Type your name in, a bunch of that comes up, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And for our audience, uh, in fact, I would say it's really st- I think your project has started a slow motion avalanche of increasing concern. That's when I first saw it see the light of day when people said, wait a minute, 
how could this be, right? And so you really, uh, really started something there, uh, you know, increasing quality of concern about, you know, research and, uh, you know, various biases that enter into what gets published, et cetera. I want you to talk a little bit about the re- replicability uh, project with respect to psychology. You know, how did you come up with the idea? You know, how did you do it? And sort of broad outline of what the results were that you found. Yeah. Uh, so this project started in late 20. 20- 11. And it was at a time where in psychology, my field, there was increasing concern about reproducibility. People were saying, people have been saying we have a problem for 40 years, but the uh, it was really becoming a, a more active discussion, even among the, the regular crowd, rather than just the methodologists who were worrying about this. And there were debates of there is a problem, there isn't a problem, and people giving great theoretical reasons but very little data, all right? It was just anecdotes, right? We couldn't replicate this finding. Well, of course you couldn't replicate that finding. No one believes that finding, but that doesn't mean there's a problem. Uh, you know, it's that kind of back and forth. And so we just thought we really should have some data, right? This is a, this is a problem that we are prepared to solve because we know how to do science on science. Yes, we'll do it. We can study it. (laughs) So it was like, okay, well, if we want to study it, what do we need? Well, we actually need to try to replicate a sample of studies uh, and see how well we do. Well, we don't have enough resources or in one lab to do that, and the incentives are bad, right? Doing replications is not the exciting thing to do in science. So he said the only way that we could actually get this done is to make it a community project. Let's see if other people are interested in the same problem, and then we'll distribute the resources, and each of us will run a replication. We'll put them all together. Uh, so we made an announcement saying, well, here's the idea. We're going to do this replication project. Anybody else want to join? And with, you know, within a week, it was something like 50 people had joined the project. I'm like, ah, pretty amazing. There are people that care about this. And so we have a real opportunity here. Uh, and so we devoted a lot of 2012 to just to sort of design this project uh, and doing this, starting the initial studies for getting a sample uh, of studies. And so we picked the year 2008. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, one of the things I don't know is how did you avoid systematic bias in the selection of the studies? Yeah. And so we try to minimize it. We can't remove it entirely because randomly sampling from from what would we yeah, randomly exactly. sample from? Uh, so the, what we ended up deciding was let's pick 2008. It's one year. Let's pick three journals. Uh, and there were three prominent journals in psychology. And we will start from the first issue published that year and the first papers in that issue and try to source as many of them as we can. Try to see if we can get people to right? So the idea is we have a systematic way of trying to identify which studies to try to replicate and then replicate as many of them as we can. And in the end, we had about 160 of possible ones that we could have selected uh, and we were able to actually complete about 100 of those. So it doesn't remove selection biases entirely uh, at all, uh, but it is the most systematic approach uh, that, that, was feasible. That, is, that is feasible to do. And so we had that, uh, and by the end of the project, 270 people had contributed to earn authorship, and another 83 or so contributed non-authorship. So it was a really wide community project, and we completed 100 replications. And so the, we published that uh, as a, collect, a collection of a summary uh, in 2015 in science. And the sort of the top line outcome was that uh, 
across a variety of different criteria to decide whether we successfully replicated or not, because it turns out that's a hard question too. Uh, less than 40% of the studies that we tried to replicate, we did we successfully replicate. And for most people, that was a number lower than they would have expected. Of the Shocking, population. I'm going to say. When I yeah. saw that when, in the science paper, when it came out, I go, holy moly, right? I might have guessed 75% uh, would have been reproducible, but 40%? 40%. That's like, whoa, what's going on here? Yeah. And so what it spurred is a lot of very good debates about what it means. Uh, is that the right number or not? Yeah, were you fair to people? I saw some of that discussion. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. Did we? So there's there's multiple reasons why we might have succeeded or failed. Right, failing to replicate doesn't mean that the original finding is unreplicable. Uh, there are three general explanations. Right, it could be that the original was a false positive. It wasn't really there. Uh, it was they observed it by chance. Statistical, whatever, yeah, noise, whatever your p value right? is, that leaves room for right. uh, everything for is random uncertain. errors, but they, it should only be small percent. Small percent of the time would be the default assumption. Second is that it was the replications of false negative. We screwed it up. We did a terrible job. The technique was hard, and you never mastered it, right? Right, whatever it was, uh, and we can't rule that out. We have lots of processes to try to minimize the likelihood of that, but we can't rule out that that didn't happen. Uh, and then the third is the most interesting area, which is both are true in the quote, quote sense, true, right? The original, they did observe it and it was a real effect. The replication failed to observe it and that was real too. And that the reason that they're different is that something fundamental is different between them that no one yet really has a full handle on, right? The theory doesn't specify uh, those conditions. There's some changes that moderate when you see that effect or not. And that's where lots of the debate was. It was like, of course you didn't replicate it. You ran your study in Indiana. Ours was done in Illinois. Totally different kinds of people, right? Or whatever, you know, it could have been lots of different things. So the, that is sort of the debate on the substance uh, of why it succeeded and failed. And what has happened since that project is that a lot of questions have been raised about why it succeeded or not. And so a lot more replication studies now have been done and are being done. So we've published four more big replication studies after that, trying to look at some of the different uh, questions that have been raised by the initial one. One of the ones that we're just about finished up is uh, taking on one of the fundamental critiques of the original uh, the replication, repl reproducibility project in psychology. And that was that we screwed it up. There was 11 findings uh, from the 100 where the original authors didn't approve of the design. Uh, so we always engaged the original authors, got the original materials that we could, and then asked for their critique. In 11 of those, they had not endorsed uh, your approach. They, the team, approach. The team's approach, right? right. So they, but we proceeded anyway because the team thought it was reasonable to do it. And so one of the critiques was, well, that's why it failed. If you had met their criteria, it would have succeeded. That is quite it's testable. Possible. Yeah, it's also a testable it's, proposition. It's plausible and testable. Right. Uh, and so, what we had organized was a replication of the replication project. Mm, I like it. And so, the we took ten of those eleven that we were able to get teams together for, and the teams ran two versions of the experiment. Uh, one was the one that we ran in the reproducibility project psychology. The second was one that went through peer review as a registered report, peer review in advance by uh, experts, and ideally including the original authors, until it ex was accepted. This is a reasonable protocol. And so that's, this is the right test. So 
Now they're running both of these protocols. What was the result? What's the bottom line? We don't have an answer yet. Oh. I, I don't oh. even know the answer. Oh. Uh, so the data collection is done. Okay. But I am blind as the uh, one of the lead authors. I am blind to the outcomes of the individual studies because what we, Charlie Ebersole is the lead author. What he and I have worked on is writing the summary report where we write the entire paper including the results section with just X's in the parts where it says, and this is what we found. I love this. <laughs> and so the whole paper is written, not knowing what the results Another are. way to eliminate bias. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so in fact, in this model, and Dan Simons is the editor of the journal it's published in, and he's really refined this model is he requires the authors to write. What will you say if it comes out this way? And what will you say if it comes out that way? And you have to put it in, in brackets, which phrasing. So basically, a whole paper's written before you know what the results That's are. That's kind of like the, the news networks do on presidential elections. This yeah. is what we're going to say That's if X right. wins. This is what we're going to say if Y wins. And uh, everybody gets to know it because it's registered right there. It's, that, it's awesome. I love it. That's really meta, you know, actually. Totally. So this yeah. has taken openness and anti-bias to a new, higher level. Right. Yeah. So we're always pushing the envelope there. You know, and, and this is a perfect place as a test bed to try to improve rigor, which is in evaluating the rigor of other research, right? So the critics are so useful for us. And you're also critiquing yourself. Because, yeah, because that criticism is like, okay, well, well yeah, let's try to do it better. Let's try to do that better. Let's try to do that and see what survives. I would be so interested uh, in the uh, results of this. Yeah. This oh, particular, I'm, I'm this, is super beautiful. this is brilliant. I'm I just love this. I really this. love this. Yeah. Uh, so now I'm going to ask you for a little speculation, right? This is outside of what you can prove, but what are your views on what's behind the replication crisis? Why do so few uh, across so many disciplines uh, fail to reproduce. Yeah. So I do, I do think the core is the incentives problem is that because, uh, and the way the incentive problem plays out, I think that is most consequential for replication uh, is in selective reporting. And that selective reporting plays out in two ways. I run many studies and I only report a subset of them. How do I decide what subset to report, right? The ones that are negative results don't quite work out or less likely to be reported than the ones that do. And the second is selective reporting of analyses. Once I've looked at the data, the data inform my subsequent judgments of how I continue to look at the data. And that iterative process is super useful for exploration. And it's super bad for diagnosticity of statistical inferences. Uh, and so to the extent that I have that flexibility of doing many analyses and reporting a subset, I am necessarily going to be introducing noise into the reports. And we know that uh, there's all kinds of spurious correlations in any data set. There have to be. Yeah, there have to be. I mean, especially if it's any high dimensional space, I guarantee, right? And so if you give yourself too much freedom uh, to go on a hunting expedition for correlations, uh, you're going to find some. Yeah, yeah. So we are against freedom. Oh, wait. No, no, no. Yeah. It's not that. <laughs> but damn it. Uh, yeah. no, I, no, I make that point clear because this is really important for yeah. people. So what we want to do is make it very clear when we are freely exploring the data versus when we are not. So we'll, we'll simply characterize these as confirmatory and exploratory approaches, right? A confirmatory approach is I had an idea in advance. 
I had a way I was going to look at the data and I laid out that way. I pre-registered it. Pre-registered it, committed to it. So I can't accidentally drift. And then I opened the data, look at it the way I said it was going to and report everything I said it was going to do, right? That maximizes the diagnosticity of the statistical inferences because I don't know the data when I make all my plans. And so the data are actually testing my hypotheses with my analysis plans. Exploration is I'm in the data and I'm looking at it and trying to discover things that I didn't anticipate, right? All my plans beforehand are naive, right? I have a terrible understanding of how the world works. So yeah, I have a plan. I analyze it that way. And then I realize I was wrong. And then I go into the data and I say, well, what might actually be happening? And so that exploration is super generative. It's super useful. It can lead you to your, to your next test. Yeah, right. It, it informs what I'm going to try next. The problem is when I mix up when I'm doing exploration and I think I'm doing confirmation. I love this. This is a very beautiful distinction. And it's actually pretty easy to implement in a molar way, which is with pre-registration, right? So the function of pre-registration is not to say confirmatory research is more important than exploratory research. It's a different thing. It's a different thing, right? It shows you when you're doing one versus the other. And of course, there is some gray area in there. And that's sort of unpacking the complexity. But the basics is pretty simple. Just commit to what you would know you're going to look at before you look at the data. And then once you look at the data, tell us, oh, you had looked at the data and adjust confidence in the claims accordingly. Uh, that's uh, brilliant, I must say. I mean, that, and it's simple, but brilliant, which are the best kinds of exactly, ideas. Exactly, right. <laughs> right. This, this is not a hard one, but it right. has huge implications. Big implications, just like the register reports, right? Yeah. That where it is you draw that line and make commitments makes a big really difference. Really important. Now, this goes to kind of the maybe the biggest question for the field of science, uh, you know, this, particularly this issue of uh, data exploration and versus data confirmation. Uh, is frankly statistics 102 for anybody who has a background in experimental design. Why have most practicing scientists made these fairly obvious statistical errors? Is there insufficient education in experimental design? Uh, what's your thought on why these, these, you know, when you stop and think about them for a little bit, these patterns are so pervasive. There are multiple reasons, I think. One is that the, a lot of the tools of statistical inference aren't actually so intuitive. So what we think intuitively a p-value, for example, right. means is not what it means. And so that's hard. Even people who have been doing it for a long time, even people writing statistics textbooks often write it wrong because it isn't aligned with intuition. So we have that to overcome, which is a hard one. The second level is, as you're saying, is training, right? In order to overcome those intuitions, we need to improve our training so that we know it. A third level of challenge is that the system actually rewards some of the wrong ways of thinking Back to the about incentives it. problem, <laughs> right? right? Bad so, incentives. Even yeah. if you have good systems, people are going to, yeah, right. around the edges, they're going to be... Uh, right. I have to get less than 0.05. Okay. I'm going to get less than 0.05. Crank, 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 right? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that plays into some of the oversimplification of it, right? Of thinking dichotomously, right? This magical barrier that, you know, of P less than 0.05 as below it means I found something and above it means I didn't. Everybody knows that's wrong. That's obviously wrong. You know, obvious, we obviously, obviously, we, we, we obviously know that there's not much difference between 0.05 and 0.0499, right? And yet, magically, one is uh, 0.051. You know, one, one is a magically right answer and one's a magically wrong answer, even despite the fact that they're down in the noise with respect to actual difference and significance. Right, 
Right. And despite us knowing that it's not right, it's hard to resist. Right. And that's even true in how we write in very subtle ways. We found this. We didn't find it there. Even though what we really mean is there were differences in how we how significant our data spoke to us. Right. Rather than saying black and white. Yes. No. Now, what about training for uh, young scientists in experimental design? Is, does much of that happen or is it done as more on the job training or do, are there mandatory courses in experimental design now for uh, graduate students? Yeah, it's highly variable uh, and that depends on institution, depends on within department and institution, and it even depends on within lab, within department, within institution. And so that problem, the problem is that it's highly heterogeneous. We, you don't know. And especially as going into a field as a grad student, this isn't usually something you would think of is what kind of training in experimental design statistics am I going to get uh, in this path? Some do, but many don't. And it's hard to assess how what my train is going to be. So there was... I. I don't remember the the source, but I recall a review of life science training programs where they looked at what is the training for experimental design statistics in the program. And it was some ridiculous percentage, like 70%. There was no no class at all. experimental design at all. Right. right. And, this program, and you know, I'm making up the number, but it was something where more than zero to me is a ridiculous <laughs> yes. percentage, right? Uh, and, but it was a ridiculously high. Uh, and so a lot of it is deferred to the lab. And if we're deferring to the lab, then it could be extremely technique focused or it could be general and you just never know. Yeah, that frankly could just be replication with the PI or another senior person's perspective and it may or may not be rigorously correct, may not be at all. You're basically just generating bad patterns from the past. Uh, let me see what else we got here. There's been a little bit of writing recently about uh, some other psychology replication failures. Uh, I think perhaps most prominently the Zimbardo Stanford Prison Project. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, that one is uh, an interesting debate uh, in that it uh, there there have been uh, replication attempts uh, and one that didn't uh, found something much milder uh, than the original. But the recent debates about the Zimbardo uh, study is that it didn't actually happen the way it was described. Aha. And so this is a fascinating, a very different kind of issue, which is the findings were presented in one way, but the reality of how the experiment was done is totally different. Uh, and there are some fascinating papers that have just come out uh, that got access to all of the transcripts, original materials, all of the full videos, you know, all this sort of background information and historical analysis of that. It's a sort of a forensic analysis yeah. almost. Yeah. And so the latest paper that came out uh, basically said... Uh, and this is oversimplifying what is a much more nuanced paper, but the, the top line result from my read was basically the PI, uh, Phil Zimbardo, and the, the lead uh, warden told the guards how to act. Mm. Now, the whole point of this was, was that an emergent, people, right? uh, yeah, people adopted these social roles. And yeah, that would totally change the read that most people put on that experiment. Right. And certainly it's interesting enough to say when people say act like this, people do. But that was demonstrated in a much more compelling way in the Milgram exactly. experiments, right? And just for fun, I went to see what replication was going on with Milgram. And there actually have been some recent replications. There was yeah. a recent study in Poland, which uh, pretty good ends. 
uh, look like it confirmed Milgram. Yeah, yeah. Everything that I've seen uh, has has shown that those Milgram findings hold up to the extent that you can still do them within ethical boundaries now. It's, and with everybody knowing about Milgram. That's, right, that's right. The there other is, people know a lot about it. This recent Polish study actually had one interesting datum. They did warn that the N was not small enough to take this to the bank, uh, but that women were three times less likely to go all the way to the limit than no men kidding. were. Yeah, oh, I mean, and huge. that wasn't observed in Stanley's original no, studies. No, That's no, they, they did warn that the uh, N wasn't large enough to be conclusive, but they said it was uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Someone yeah. Should well, that's, ramp that's that up. the right way to frame it, which is this is interesting. Someone should follow it up. Exactly. With a bigger number focused just on this card. That's have a balanced number and make it easy. All right, last thing here. Uh, let's move on to your own research. The uh, Project Implicit. This is, uh, why don't you put it in your words? What is Project Implicit? And uh, you know what is what is it you're trying to get at? So this is the work that I did for the first lion's share of my career, uh, where the our core interest is in thoughts and feelings that exist outside of conscious awareness or conscious control, and how they might still impact our perception, our judgment, our action uh, in everyday life. So the popular term that has emerged is implicit bias. So this is implicit bias research. And Project Implicit uh, is actually a nonprofit. It's the nonprofit I ran before starting COS. That is a collaboration between multiple universities uh, that have been responsible for doing a portion of this research. It's a large research area, lots of different contributors. But uh, my laboratory, Mazarin Banaji's laboratory at Harvard, she was my graduate mentor. Uh, and Tony Greenwald's laboratory, University of Washington, he was Mazarin's graduate mentor, are the three originating labs. And now there are many other labs involved in it. But we developed and advanced the initial evidence about uh, one tool for trying to measure implicit bias, which is called the implicit association test. And we developed a number of other methodologies related to it. Is that the common one you see on the internet for seeing, for looking for racial bias with word reactions and things yeah, like that? That is Project Implicit. Okay, so, cool. yeah, so yeah, right. I, in graduate school, I built the first version of that website. Okay. Uh, and that is the work that we did. Uh, and then the running of that website came with me to uh, University of Virginia. The website is housed at Harvard, where my collaborator is. Uh, but we ran it at University of Virginia until... I started Center for Open Science, uh, and then my former graduate since so so academic yeah, yeah. yeah. So the uh, collection of my uh, former graduate students from my lab now run Project Implicit. Uh, and so it's been a super useful uh, research enterprise. Millions of people come to our website every year and complete these tests, and we get lots and lots of interesting data about how do you actually try to measure feelings or thoughts that might be different than people's conscious values, and then study how how are they relevant in everyday life? Do these actually predict what people do? Uh, how do they change? Is changing them related to people's behavior change? And there's there is a very active research enterprise with lots of very interesting uh, debates that would take an entire another hour and a half uh, to unpack, but it's a fascinating uh, area. But for me, the great part of it in sort of looking from what I do now to what I started with is that really a lot of our current active application uh, to try to change research practices is rooted in that work on unintended bias. 
right? Is that really this isn't the, I don't feel sort of looking at my own career like I've changed direction. What I've really done is say, take all of this work we learned about how people apply motivated reasoning or bias without recognizing it and need help to live according to their values. Right? I don't intend to be racially biased, but I can be without intending to because of these things that are clicking away uh, in my mind that might guide me in different directions. Likewise, I don't intend to find out false things. But I might because of all these things clicking away. Ah, I can see the. I can see how the two are very parallel. And how moving from one to the other was really not at, unnatural at all. No, it was a very. Uh, we draw on that work constantly, and so I really. That's to me very gratifying. Is that I feel like what we're really doing is applied work on some of those basic questions. Well, Brian, I'd really like to thank you for uh, this discussion. This has been uh, even richer than I was hoping it would be. This is, you know, dug into some of the very deep issues on, you know, why science doesn't work as well as it could. It still works great. So don't get me wrong, people. I love science. I support science. Uh, but work like Brian's is absolutely critical to have society get a greater return for the fairly massive investment we make in science just between NSF and NIH last numbers I pulled up were $46 billion. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And if we could make that even 20% more efficient, that's a very significant thing. And, uh, you know, I talked to Brian early in uh, the Center for Open yeah. Science, yeah, yeah. and uh, he had some of these ideas. He didn't even have all these ideas, but this thing has really grown to be a very impressive operation. It really is moving. And what's most gratifying about it is that there is an incredible grassroots element to it, right? There's so many different people in the community in so many different areas that are working on these problems. And so really our role, we feel, is just to try to help connect all of these different players that are really changing the system. Great. I'd uh, you know, recommend to anybody working in the sciences or in the funding of science or the governance of science to check out the uh, Center for Open Science. Uh, what's the uh, URL? COS.io. COS.io. Thank you, Brian. Great. Thank you, Jim. Great. Appreciate it. Production services and audio editing by Stanton Media Lab. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. 